following podcast is not suitable for listeners of any age. The podcast may include poor guitar playing, dad jokes, and inducement of fear acquisition syndrome. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening to you wherever you're listening. I'm your host, Carson, and welcome to the Pedals and Pickups podcast. In this podcast, we'll talk about your news in the music industry. We're faster than Internet Explorer, but who isn't? Famous pieces of gear that I'm too broke to buy. Famous artists I'll never be able to play like. And recording tips to get your music out to the masses. This week, we've got another awesome show lined up for you guys. We're going to talk about some news, including an accidental product leaked by Strymon. We're going to talk about boosts, overdrives, and distortion, and what they can do for you and your guitar tone. We're going to go over the tones of Tony Iommi on the song War Pigs by Black Sabbath. And lastly, we're going to talk about germanium versus silicon. In terms of electrical components, when you're talking about transistors and diodes, what does it all mean? What's the hype about germanium being better than silicon? And is that actually as true as everybody on online guitar forums would want you to believe? So to get started this week, it looks like Strymon has accidentally released a line of new pedals. Apparently there was a user on the gear page, which is an online guitar forum, and they posted a screenshot from a video that was posted to YouTube, but is now unlisted by Strymon. Now, the screenshot itself was a screenshot of six of their pedals. It was the Blue Sky, which is a reverb, the Flint, which is a reverb and tremolo, the Dig, which is a digital delay, the El Cap, which is a tape echo, the Lex, which is a Univibe style pedal, and the Deco, which is a tape saturator. All of these are part of Strymon's compact line of pedals, so the ones that are like iridium size, not the Blue Sky or Timeline size pedals. And from this screenshot, every single pedal in there, except for the Flint, has at least one extra knob on it to control another parameter. So just comparing the screenshot to the current run of Strymon compact pedals, they've added a shimmer knob to the Blue Sky, they've added a tone knob to the Deco and the Dig, they've added a spring knob to the L Cap, the Lex actually has the biggest update. It's got added knobs for volume and dry, and then two toggle switches now that adjust ramp and mic. These pedals, according to the video, will also include MIDI control via TRS. So if you want to control your Strymon pedals via MIDI, you no longer need a 5-pin MIDI cable or anything like that. And there's no availability in the video on price or where they'll be sold or when they'll be released yet. But the current compact pedal lineup that Strymon has with these, each one of them go for 300 bucks a piece. Will they stay the same? Will they change? I'm not sure. But uh, it looks interesting. It's definitely cool to see them revitalizing that compact line, adding some new features, keeping it alive. I'm really excited to see when these will be formally announced, not via mistake. I mean, it is always possible that Strymon intended for the leak to happen. You know, I can't think of any better way to generate hype than to accidentally let it slip that you're releasing something new. Maybe this was a marketing move on their part. I don't know. I'd be curious to actually see what's going on inside Strymon right now, especially their marketing department. If they're sitting there saying, wow, wow, everybody's talking about this. Everybody's looking at our, our little leak here, air quotes. Or if right now they're playing damage control and struggling to uh, pull everything related to this and tell everybody to stop talking about it. But, uh, but we'll see, yeah. You know, I'm excited. Our next piece of news is that the Carnegie Science Center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, 
opens a new exhibit called Guitar, the Instrument that Rocked the World. So this exhibit is actually a touring exhibit of the National Guitar Museum. It's a collection of 70 different instruments, including precursors to the guitar, and it aims to allow people to relate music to science and review changes in both guitars and society that accompany the changes to guitars. The largest portion of the exhibit is actually the current Guinness World Record holder for the largest playable electric guitar. It's a 43-foot-long flying V. It's 12 times the size of a standard flying V. And I believe it was actually built by a couple of students, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, either way, that's pretty interesting. The exhibit actually has a little bit of a sense of humor. They have an empty guitar case somewhere in the exhibit that includes a stand and explanation of the air guitar. I don't know about you, but I am great at that. It's probably my favorite guitar. I'm the best at playing that one. Trust me. Don't listen to these demos. Listen to me play air guitar. You'll be swept off your feet. There are 15 different hands-on exhibits that allow visitors to interact with and learn about different elements that make a guitar work, such as like acoustics in terms of the sound with the cabinets and, you know, hitting things like concert halls. Um, if you weren't aware, most concert halls, especially things like a Royal Albert Hall, they are designed to sound good to the audience in the pit. And special attention is paid to their construction to make sure that the room itself works with the instruments that are being played on the stage. Another topic that you can learn about there is electromagnetism. So if you're interested in learning about how pickups work, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a future episode, they claim that they have some hands-on exhibits there that'll be able to demonstrate the concepts for you in a really fun and interesting way. This uh, exhibit is included with general admission, and it'll be present in the Science Center until October of this year. At that point, they'll pack it up and they'll move it somewhere else. But if you're around the Pittsburgh area and you really love guitar and you really love learning about the science behind it, I know that's something that I'm super into and I would love to go if I could, definitely go there and check it out. I mean, general admission to that science center and you get into this exhibit. It looks absolutely bonkers. If you guys are curious, just check out pictures on the internet. There's a bunch. They are really pushing this thing. Last bit of our news is something a little bit... Uh, Okay, I'm going to be honest with you guys. I, I laughed when uh, I originally read this. But uh, Fender has partnered with Meta, otherwise known as Facebook, to create a VR world called the Strataverse. Spooky, right? So Fender's created their world in Meta's VR service called Horizon Worlds, and they named it the Strataverse, aptly. Horizon Worlds is a type of like social networking VR platform that's played on VR systems like the Oculus. Uh, worlds are areas that users can join into, they can talk to each other, they can play different games or do activities within that world. The Fender Strataverse takes place chiefly on a large island shaped like, you know, you guessed it, uh, Fender Strat. And the premise of this thing, from what I can gather, is that you complete different guitar-related challenges. Um, some of these challenges are like playing the air guitar, like we talked about, I am absolutely amazing at that. Uh, throwing picks, things like that, and you can unlock different chords. At the center of the world, there's a riff maker, and that riff maker has 18 different slots for chords where you can insert the chords you unlock through the challenges to make a looping riff with other people that you play with. You fly around to the different challenges to actually complete them on a Fender-themed pedal, so that's the new mode of transportation in the VR world. 
Fender has also filed trademarks for NFTs for different digital intellectual properties as well. You know, uh, they're not the first ones to do it. Gibson's also done it. They've also tried to sell some NFTs, like uh, certain albums and things like that. But Fender's jumping on the train now too. But in terms of this, uh, in terms of this VR world, I mean, just what? Why? I mean, it it seems cool, right? I'm not gonna lie. I'll probably drop in there and play around with it. But to me, this just seems like it's the equivalent of owning a Fender themed crock pot. I mean, what does this have to do with guitar more than just just marketing? Um, but, but I don't know, you know, maybe they'll find a way to make like a Rocksmith-esque Fender play in VR. You know, if you're not familiar with Rocksmith, it is a video game similar in concept to like Guitar Hero or Rock Band, but it came with a USB to quarter inch cable that you'd plug into your guitar and you could essentially play Guitar Hero with a real guitar. Uh, Fender Play is Fender's online guitar learning platform. I will say, though, I don't know how well that would work in VR. Uh, it'd be pretty difficult to actually see what you're doing unless they're encouraging learning by feel. I know some VR systems have, like, a system of cameras on the outside of the visor, but I, I, I think that'd just feel too weird to actually play with guitar. But, you know, let, let's see where they take it. Let's see, you know, how successful it is, where it goes. Um... I, I'm still going to say I'm excited. I love almost anything guitar-related. I eat all of it up. But, uh, but yeah, if you guys ever wanted to spend some time on a Stratocaster-shaped island, you know, Fender and Meta will hook you up. Definitely go check it out. Go try it. Now, getting into the meat and potatoes of our podcast. I always say that because meat and potatoes are the best part. Our famous gear this week is boosts, overdrives, and distortions. Dirt pedals are probably one of the most fun areas of pedal collecting and definitely the area with the most options. I guarantee you, if you go look at anybody that has more than three pedals and you start poking around through their stuff, you're probably going to find that the majority of them are dirt pedals. I know that's the case with me. You may have seen different terms for dirt pedals. Uh, you'll hear the terms like boost, overdrive, distortion, and fuzz. I absolutely love fuzz, as I've talked about before. It's got a special place in my heart, and there's a lot of rich history there in terms of the evolution of fuzz. But today we're not going to talk about that. In terms of fuzz, look forward to a special episode in the coming weeks where we do a whole spiel on the history we give examples of how fuzz developed and why it developed the way it did, but that's not today. This week, we're looking at boosts, overdrives, and distortions. Before we get into this topic, I do owe you guys a little bit of an explanation. Now, on this show, I talk a lot about transistors and op-amps. You know, I include a lot of nomenclature, uh, a lot of their actual materials and stuff that they're made out of, but what does a transistor and what does an op-amp actually do? So beginning with transistors, they have three legs. One of the legs is a base or an input, then you have a collector, which is your power, and then an emitter, an output. You'll commonly hear the phrase NPN when talking about transistors. This refers to the base having a net negative charge, hence the N, 
and electrons flowing into the input as your signal. That's your, that's your N in the NPN. Now the collector is where the battery or the power supply actually fuels it. That has a net positive charge. And then the emitter, which is where the boosted signal then flows out of, it's like your output, it has a net negative charge. So NPN, your, uh, your input is negative, your collector is positive, and then your emitter is negative. There's also PNP type. So PNP works in a similar way. It's essentially just the opposite direction. And instead of using the flow of electrons to carry your signal, you use holes to carry your signal. A little bit different. You also hear the terms JFET or MOSFET when we talk about transistors. Uh, JFET is uh, an acronym that stands for a junction field electron transistor. And a MOSFET is a metal oxide semiconductor field effect transistor. So the only difference between a JFET and a MOSFET is that the MOSFET, as its name implies, it has a metal oxide layer in the circuit, and it separates the base of the, from the collector and the emitter. It gives it a little bit of electrical isolation, brings the noise floor down. It's usually a little bit more expensive, but it's used in higher fidelity or high noise situations. Op amps are operational amplifiers. They're not transistors, but they're a type of something called an IC, an integrated circuit, otherwise known as a chip. An op amp has two inputs and an output. Uh, we accomplish amplification in the op amp by unbalancing the two inputs. So the op amp, what it'll do, you'll see an inverted input and a non-inverted input, and it'll try to make those the same by boosting or cutting the signal. And once it boosts the signal, because the way we manipulate the op amp in the circuit, then it pushes that boosted signal through the output. Now that we know what transistors and op amps are, let's talk about the circuits that they're used in, these boosts, overdrives, and distortions. So boosts are easily the most simple of all of your different dirt pedals. Really, you may not even be able to consider a boost a dirt pedal, and you'll see why once we explain it. So boost pedals don't actually accomplish their dirt like overdrives and distortions do. They attempt to drive your input signal into your amp harder, and that forces the input of the amp to clip, creating your dirt that way. So your boost itself doesn't really have any clipping going on. There's no crunchiness going on inside the pedal. It's trying to get the preamp section of your amp to do that for it. One of the simplest boost circuits to explain is the Electroharmonics LPB1, or the Linear Power Booster 1, the LPB1 uses a transistor to actually boost the signal. So now that we know the core component of the circuit, we look at the LPB1 as a defined clean boost. A clean boost is one that doesn't seek to modify your guitar's EQ at all. It just serves to make it louder going into the front of the amp. This also might be known as a transparent boost. Boosts can be marketed as clean, and a lot of them ideally are, but depending on the quality of a boost pedal, it may color your tone somewhat. So if you get like a really low quality boost, you may see some changes, especially like a lot of low end or a lot of high end. But typically, boosts are designed to keep your guitar sounding exactly the way it is, just louder. A really great example of like a good clean boost that's very high quality is Akili Katana. So let's listen to a demo of how a boost circuit, like the LPB1 in this example, can work for you to drive your amp a little harder. We're going to be playing a Fender Jaguar into a Vox Valvenergy Silk Drive, which is a Dumbly style amp in a box. And then for our cabinet, 
we're going to be using a two notes with a Fender 77 DRRI cabinet. So for this demo, we're going to run it with the clean tone first. I'm going to play three little chords, and then I'm going to kick in the boost so you can see what it's doing to the front end of the amp and how it's affecting the tone. So another popular type of boost is called the treble booster. This was made popular by Dallas Arbiter of England with their Rangemaster circuit that they released in 1966. Treble boosters were actually made as a solution to a problem. In the 60s, you know, we start to see a lot of guitarists that are beginning to use humbuckers and British amps. Both of those have a notoriously bassy, really dark character to them. Treble boosters were designed to actually reintroduce the high end while still accomplishing a boosted sound. They were very popular and they were heavily used with guitarists like Eric Clapton and Brian May, two huge guitar giants known for using those a lot. So let's listen to a demo of a treble booster. Uh, this demo we're going to be using the Catalan Bread Naga Viper. We're also going to be using an Epiphone SG with some humbucking pickups. And then we're going to be switching our amp modeler to the Vox Valvenergy Copperhead Drive. It's modeling a Marshall amp, that way it's going to be British, it's going to be nice and dark, especially with those humbucking pickups. So we're using the treble booster in the situation it was really designed for. Once again, I'm going to play three chords just on the clean tone, and then we're going to kick on the treble booster, that way you can see what it's doing to the guitar signal. Let's take a listen. So you can definitely hear how it takes that really dark, really deep, really bassy tone and not only adds the drive that's indicative of a boost hitting the front end of the amp really hard, but reintroduces a lot of the high end that you lose just by using something so dark. I really love treble boosters. So if you like the idea of pushing your amp harder, getting a lot of tube saturation, especially if you're using a tube amp, you can try these budget-friendly boosts. You have the Electroharmonics LPB1, the one that I used in that first demo. That one's 44 bucks street. It is dirt cheap and it's absolutely amazing. And then you've got the TC Electronics Spark. It's another very wallet-friendly pedal. It's 60 bucks for the mini version and it's 70 bucks for the full version. The full version just has a few more controls and it's got tone print capability. Absolutely great. If you want some of those vintage treble boosted tones, i.e. you really like Eric Clapton, you really like Brian May, or as we're going to talk about in a little bit, you really like Tony Iommi, then you can pick up a treble booster clone. There's not many budget options out there, but you can look for sales or you can jump onto a Catalan Bread Naga Viper like I used in that demo. It's 180 bucks, but it also includes a knob that dials back the treble that way it doubles as a fully clean boost. It's a really great pedal, really fun, especially if you get the gallery edition, the graphics on it are super cool. Another option is the Full Tone Ranger. It's 232 bucks, but it's a really quality copy of a Dallas Rangemaster treble booster. You know, hence the name. 
Now that we've gone over boost, let's get into something a little more fun, something that's got some actual dirt in the pedal. And those are overdrives. So overdrives were designed with a similar purpose in mind to a boost. It wants to get you the saturated sound of a tube amplifier that has the tubes cooking. But, you know, what if you can't play your tube amp loud enough in a certain setting? Like, what if you're a bedroom player, or you live in an apartment? Somewhere that cranking the volume knob or playing with a boost pedal to saturate your tubes would just be way too loud. That's where overdrives come in. There's two main types of overdrives. There's soft clipping and there's hard clipping. Most overdrives are going to be what's considered soft clipping. Soft clipping refers to the way the diodes actually interact with each other and how it manipulates your guitar signal. So if you think of your guitar signal as a wave, when you push the amplitude of the wave outside the headroom, hard clipping cuts the signal right there. So hard clipping results pretty much in like a square wave if you look at it as a graph of your guitar signal. Whereas soft clipping, it actually allows the signal to complete the curve outside of the headroom, but it's a greatly reduced angle. So soft clipping overdrives sound a lot more smooth and natural than hard clipping overdrives. Most overdrives are going to be soft clipping, most distortions are going to be hard clipping, but there is a few exceptions, and we'll talk about one of those. So overdrives may use op-amps or transistors, but most popular versions like the Tube Screamer, the SD-1, or the Plumes, they all use op-amps. Popular soft clipping overdrives include the, probably the most famous overdrive of all, uh, the Ibanez Tube Screamer, or its boss counterpart, the Super Overdrive, or the SD-1. So let's listen to a demo of what a soft clipping overdrive can do for you. We're going to go back to using the Jaguar. We're going to use the Vox Valvener G Silk Drive. We're going to use the SD-1, and we're going to use an IR to simulate a Fender 77 cabinet. And let's take a listen to what a soft clipping overdrive does to your tone. Once again, it's going to be three clean chords, and then we're going to kick the overdrive on. You're going to see how gorgeous it sounds. So that was our soft clipping overdrive. Now, hard clipping overdrives, without being distortions, they do exist. The Klon is actually a really great example of that, and any of its accompanying clones. Another really good example, because we talk about the Klon and its clones a lot, is the Full Tone OCD. So let's give a listen to our hard clipping overdrive. Same exact setup as the last demo, we're just trading that SD-1 for an OCD. So you can definitely hear through those demos that the OCD and hard clipping overdrives in general are a lot more gnarly. They're a lot more aggressive. If you really like the sound of soft clipping overdrives, you want to use those to get that tube saturated tone at a lower volume. Great option. Always go with the classics. The Ibanez TS9, which you can pick up for $110. Bucks. Another great option is the Earthquaker Devices Plumes. It's $99. Bucks. It comes in a range of colors. I think there's like 13 or 15 different versions of it. All the same circuit, just a different colorway. 
and it also includes a toggle switch that has different modes, including a boost. So it's like three pedals in one. Definitely try it out. Pick it up, you'll love it, I promise. If you like those hard clipping overdrives, you want that more aggressive sound without getting into the territory of distortion, some great choices are the Electroharmonic Soul Food, which is a Klon clone, it's 96 bucks, and the Full Tone OCD, like we used in that demo, it's 131 bucks. Some overdrives use unique methods of creating their clipping. One example of a unique overdrive pedal is the Boss BD2 Blues Driver. The BD2 actually has multiple transistor-based gain stages that cascade into one another, and that's what creates its drive. Let's listen to a demo of the BD2. We're going to hear its unique gain profile. Once again, same setup as the last demo. Now we're trading out that OCD for a BD2. Let's see if you like it. So we've listened to our BD2, we've gotten our unique type of overdrive, let's get into the category of distortion. Now distortion pedals were essentially a way to just get even more gain out of an overdrive. They're a little bit more tame than fuzz, so they don't exactly fall into that category. They typically have a little bit tighter low end than a fuzz does, but they're still extremely high gain. Most distortion pedals are hard clipping and they use op amps. One of the most common distortion pedals ever is the Proco Rat. Now, I actually read somebody on Reddit, very active on there, uh, stating that back in the 90s, them and all of their friends who were guitar players had a Rat, but they didn't have any other pedals. You know, I quote, We knew what phasers were, but we didn't use them. They all really loved the sound of a good Rat. Imagine that being your only pedal, and for a while, I mean, especially for a lot of beginner guitarists or younger guitarists, that was all they had, that was all they really needed. So, let's listen to a demo and see what that legendary Proco Rat distortion sound can do for you. If you've just listened to that demo and you found yourself itching for distortion, you can't get enough of it, Two great options for a budget distortion pedal is, of course, you know, the Proco Rat. It's 80 bucks for one of the modern versions of the Rat. If you're into vintage collecting, there's a lot of vintage versions of the Rat. Uh, white face rats tend to be the way to go. Um, but, of course, they're going to have a price tag to match. Another great option is the Boss DS1. It goes for 62 bucks. Super wallet-friendly. A lot of times they go on sale. You can get them as low as 30 35 40 and it's a great tone. Like we talked about in our last episode, Kurt Cobain of Nirvana got a majority of his specific tone from the Boss DS1. When I think of distortion, I think of metal. And who better to talk about after discussing boosts, overdrives, and distortions than a very famous metal guitarist, none other than Tony Iommi of Black Sabbath. Tony Iommi is a British guitarist, famous for co-founding and working with the band Black Sabbath. He's actually ranked 25 in Rolling Stone's list of 100 greatest guitarists of all time. He was born in Birmingham, England in 1948, and he picked up the guitar as a teenager. Tony first met Ozzy Osbourne, and he started the foundation of Black Sabbath in 1968. This was after he responded to an ad in a local music store 
saying that, uh, you know, he needed people for a gig and he had his own PA. They originally formed the six-piece band, the Polka Toke Blues Band, and they played for one month before they fired their slide guitarist and their saxophone player, went to a four-piece band, and renamed it Earth. Tony Iommi left Earth to go play for the band Jethro Tull, and it's said that during this time, his playing is out of this world. Get it? He left Earth? No? Okay, I'll stick to the facts. Thanks. Uh, after two shows, he rejoined the band Earth, and Earth was renamed to Black Sabbath soon after, uh, when they were confused with another British band that was named Earth, and they became extremely successful, in part due to their pioneering use of lower tunings and large amounts of gain. The band toured with the current lineup until 1979. At that point, Ozzy was replaced with Ronnie James Dio of, well, Dio fame. Uh, and that marked further departures and rotating through a lot of different band members until 1984 when the band stopped recording and Tony started working on his first solo stuff. Now, Tony Iommi played at the Freddie Mercury Memorial Concert in 1992. He played with Queen. Then in 1997, the original members of Black Sabbath reunited to tour again. In 2011, the band started working on a new album. They did use a replacement drummer due to some medical conditions experienced by Bill Ward, and the album was aptly named 13 as it was released in 2013. So on to Tony Iommi's gear. Tony uses a custom SG, a signature model that Gibson makes. It's super cool. It's all blacked out. It's got these little crosses for the fret markers. I don't think you could find a more metal-looking guitar than Tony Iommi's signature SG. But this is a budget show, and that guitar costs $2,400. Think of the things that you could buy with $2,400. You know... Honestly, scratch that. With inflation, just buy the guitar. It's probably cheaper. I, I doubt you could find a running car anymore for $2,400. <laughs> I was going to make a joke about that, but honestly, it's it's really just not true anymore. You probably spend 2400 bucks a year on gas. Screw it. Ride your bike for a year. Get a Tony Iommi SG. If you don't want to do that, though, a great alternative here would be really anything that has a solid body and has P90s or humbuckers as he regularly kind of rotated between both. If you guys didn't know, Tony Iommi is actually the first artist that Gibson made a set of signature pickups for. So, in his honor, sticking with that same body shape, if you really like the look, you can go with the Epiphone SG Standard, it's 500 bucks, or you can go with the ESP LTD Viper 10, if you want to go a little more wallet-friendly, for 200 bucks. For his amplifier, he uses a Laney TI-100 signature head. It's his own Tony Iommi signature head. Uh, I don't think you can find them new anymore. I wasn't able to find any. But they go used on reverb for about 1400 bucks, from what I can see. Now, Tony actually stated that he's used Laney amps because they're from his hometown of Birmingham. And they started around the same time Black Sabbath did, so he feels a connection to them. Laney amps are characteristically British-sounding, so something close to a Marshall should do very well. One of these options is the Marshall Code 50. Talked about it a lot. I think it's been in a majority of our episodes, really. It's 400 bucks. It's a great modeling amp for Marshall tones. The amp that we're going to use in this demo is going to be the Vox Valnergy Copperhead Drive. You guys have also heard this before, but it's because it's great. It's 180 bucks. I mean, it is absolutely killer. It includes controls just like a real amp, 
It's got new tube technology to get tube sounding tone from this when you use it as a preamp. It's got a switch to move between its use as a pedal, its use as a preamp, and its use as a rig in a box with an internal cab sim. And it's also got a link port. So you can take a regular 3.5 millimeter aux cable and you can use the other Valvener G-Series pedals, hook them together with those aux cables, and when you turn one on, it turns the others off. So you can have up to four pedals together as a complete channel switching amp. Super, super dope. So for your gain on the Vox Valvener G Copperhead drive, you're gonna set it just a little bit short of dimed. You don't want it all the way there. You're gonna put the bright switch off. You're gonna put your bass about halfway up, your mids bump it up a little bit further than that, and your treble at about two o'clock. Let's give a listen to what our Epiphone SG and our Vox Copperhead drive sound like, running it through a two notes that's doing an IR of a Marshall cabinet. So that's still a really good usable tone, but it doesn't really sound like Tony's tone. The reason for that is Tony Iommi uses a treble booster. He uses a Dallas Rangemaster. Uh, after a while, he actually lost it, and then he started using an Analog Man Beano Boost, which is another type of Rangemaster clone. And for the purposes of this demo, we're going to go back to our trusty Naga Viper. We're going to set the range, i.e. the treble control, to all the way up, so full treble boosting. We're going to set the other two knobs about noon, maybe kick the boost up a little bit higher to drive the front of the amp harder. And then we're going to put all this together, and it's going to sound a lot more like Tony Iommi's tone. Before, it's just a dimed Marshall. I mean, a lot of people used a dimed Marshall tone. But to really get his sound, that treble booster is definitely a key component. So let's give a listen to our Epiphone SG, our Vox Copperhead Drive, and our Catalan Bread Naga Viper. So that definitely sounds a lot closer, especially in the power chords. You can hear that Black Sabbath DNA in there, and it's extremely close just for using a really budget-friendly guitar and two pedals. Last key element to Tony Iommi's tone is going to be the Boss OD-1. Of course, this is, you know, ignore some more esoteric stuff like modulation effects and a Tycho Bray Wah that he uses on some of his solos and other songs. Mostly here in this demo, we're trying to go for just his bass gain tone. Now the OD-1 is a little bit harder to find now, so we're going to use the Boss SD-1. Get this brand new for 62 bucks. It's one of the soft clipping overdrives that we talked about earlier in this episode, and he typically uses it just to boost his solo tone a little bit more. Gives him a bit of a mid-hump, makes him a little bit louder, makes it easier for him to cut through the mix. So let's go ahead and give a listen to our Epiphone SG, our Vox Copperhead Drive, and our Boss SD-1 with the Tony Iommi solo tone. One thing to note about this setup is that you are using a lot of gain when you're playing with these tones. You've got a nearly dimed Marshall or Marshall simulator. You've got another boost running into it. At all times, you're just boosting the crap out of this amp and that results in a lot of noise. Even using humbucker pickups, you're going to have a lot of noise in this rig. So one of the things you guys should look into using is some type of noise gate 
whether it's integrated into your rig through something digital, like the Two Notes has one integrated, uh, Fender GTX has an option in there, a lot of Zoom stuff, Helix stuff, uh, Neural DSP stuff has one in there. But if you don't, you're going to want to look at getting an actual noise gate pedal. You know, the, I use three different ones. I use an ISP Decimate G, absolutely great, and it's a mini pedal. I use a Pigtronics Gatekeeper, another mini pedal that works really well. And then I use a Donner Softgate, and that's probably the most wallet-friendly of all these. But this episode isn't about noise gates. I just wanted to plug that for you guys, because if you guys start making these tones, you know, pretty much any type of hard rock or metal tone that's got a dimed amp or a nearly dimed amp with a lot of gain, you're going to notice that you've got a lot of noise. Pretty much every time you take your fingers off the strings and you don't manually mute the guitar, you're just going to have noise like crazy. So it's a good thing to look into a noise gate. I think it'll help you guys out a lot. A recording tip for this week may not necessarily be a recording tip, but it's still something that I really want to talk about because I think it's super important. Silicon versus germanium. What's the difference? So a lot of people rave, especially online, about how germanium is much more rich or it's more, uh, it's got a better sound than silicon. There's less people, but there's definitely still people who think silicon is better. Um, but due to being more expensive to produce and you know, possibly a little sprinkling of hype, pedals that use germanium transistors or diodes can be much more expensive than their silicon counterparts. Even if you have a brand that makes the exact same pedal, but one uses silicon diodes and one uses germanium diodes, the germanium version can be more expensive. I don't think that you know germanium is necessarily better than silicon. Uh, silicon isn't necessarily better than germanium. They're both just different. Germanium is typically a little smoother than silicon is. Uh, silicon can have a lot more aggression and push behind it, though. And to compare germanium and silicon side by side, we're actually going to use the Earthquaker Devices Special Cranker. So this pedal is an update to Earthquaker Devices' original speaker cranker, but it includes two additional knobs and a toggle switch that swaps between germanium and silicon clipping diodes. First, we're going to demo it on the silicon mode, then I'll stop, I'll engage the germanium mode, and I'll play the same thing over with a new set of diodes. You're going to hear how the germanium is really smooth, and the silicon's really aggressive and has a lot of push, a lot more treble behind it. Let's go ahead and give a listen. So once again, we heard in the beginning how the silicon was a lot more aggressive, had a lot more treble, had a lot more bite. The germanium was a lot smoother and a lot more tame. It is a definite difference. It's not like, and I know I'm going to catch flack for this, it's not like the Tonewood debate, which where it's an argument if it's even there or not. Uh, one isn't worse than the other here. It all depends on the tone you're trying to go for, the sound you're trying to get, but also how the circuit is designed to accommodate the components. So if you have a circuit that's designed primarily for silicon diodes, it's probably not going to sound good with germanium in it. Likewise, if you take a circuit for something that's designed for germanium, say like an original Dallas Arbiter Rangemaster circuit, and you put silicon diodes in it or a silicone transistor in it, it's not going to sound as good as it would with a germanium diode. 
it's all in how the circuit was designed and what it was intended to be used for. You know, I will take a quality silicon-built pedal any day over a poorly-built germanium pedal, and even then, it all depends on what I'm using it for. For a lot of vintage tones, a lot of more tame stuff, I'm definitely going to want germanium. But if I'm trying to get an all-out, everything-to-the-wall metal tone, I'm going to want that aggression that silicon provides. So to wrap up our show for this week, our fun fact is that Tony Iommi actually has prosthetic fingertips. So if you've seen pictures of Tony Iommi, you may have noticed there's something a little bit different about the ring and middle fingers on his right hand. He's a lefty, so his right hand would be his fretting hand, not his picking hand. Tony Iommi used to work as a welder before he became a full-time musician. It was actually his last day of work at a certain sheet metal factory, and he was called to fill in on a press. There was an accident, he brought the press down, and he chopped the tips of his fingers off. Tony then actually made his first prosthetics himself, once the doctors told him he would never be able to play again, and he used an old bottle that he melted down, uh, shaped it to the shape of a finger, and then covered it with leather. It made it very hard for him to bend strings. Different string gauges for electric guitars weren't really widely available at this time, so he started using some banjo strings to compensate for that, and eventually he just started using lighter gauge strings as they became easier to find, and he began detuning to make bends easier, which, as we talked about before, is, I believe at least, in part due to Black Sabbath's success as a metal band. They pioneered that. It's been a super fun week hanging out with you guys once again, talking gear, talking guitars. If you want to talk to me a little bit more, want to get my thoughts on stuff, my advice, or you just want to talk about gear, please, please, please reach out over Facebook, reach out over Reddit, or email me at pedalsandpickups at gmail.com to suggest topics or just chat about gear. More than happy to sit down, answer your guys' questions, give your guys thoughts, or even take any creatively worded insults you might have. Absolutely love. Eat it up. Call me a four eyes guys probably don't know it because I have a face for radio, so I don't do the whole YouTube video thing, but yeah, I wear glasses. Blind as a bat. If you like the show and you want to see it continue, I'd be super, super grateful if you guys supported the show on Patreon. Every dollar that you donate on Patreon goes right back into the podcast. You know, it costs money to host the podcast. It costs money to get the gear that I feature on the show to do the tone chasing for you guys and all the equipment to make the show. There's a lot of stuff that goes into making a podcast, and uh, you know some of it can get pretty pricey. Um, I'd love to have some better gear, especially because uh, my clock desyncs a lot. I have to stop recording and wait for it to get synced back up. Definitely a fun time. But yeah, if you enjoy this show, if you enjoy sitting down and hanging out with me every week, like I enjoy sitting down and hanging out with you guys, please donate to Patreon, even just a dollar. I will be super appreciative, and I'll mention you guys by name on the show. It's been awesome hanging out. I love you guys. I'll see you guys next week where we talk about some more super cool, important gear and news. Take care.